Well, I was thinking about um, conversation my wife and I have pretty regularly, and it starts with this. I will say to her, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And she'll respond, I don't care. Just tell me what you're going to tell me, and we'll figure it out. And so then, you know, I'm like, well, that's not as fun. Um, Do you want the good news or bad news? And she's like, just tell me what you're going to tell me. But have you noticed how sometimes I can, you can make good news look bad or bad news look good if you twist your words enough? Like, that can happen. We've kind of done that. Um, because some of us will say, I just want the good news only. Don't tell me about the bad news. Right? Kind of like that. It's way more fun. Give me just the good news. I don't want to know about the bad news. But I was thinking about how um, that gives us kind of this temptation that we'll tell people exactly what they want to hear or what we want to hear. We will hear only what we want to hear and we'll ignore the other part. I know none of you have ever done that. It's only me who has done that before. You would never do that. But I do think that is often a temptation for us. We want to hear what we want to hear. But we don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. And so I was thinking about how um, that creates this unique dilemma in the church. How we, we know we're called to, to like talk to people about the way in which God loves them and calls them to a unique way of life. And sometimes we live into ways that aren't that unique or aren't that good. In fact, they're probably destructive. And I was thinking about how how in these seasons, I read a lot of studies right now on, on, um, from Barna and Gallup and others who are putting together stuff on what the church is doing or not doing, what people are saying or not saying. And, and this last, last year and a half has been a weird year, right? No, no way around that. But, but one of the things I've heard several times is people go, well, I've got to tell them the truth. And they do it like with almost like anger and bitterness and like, huh, I'm holier than you. I know more than you do. And it's almost like this sense of gratification that I get to tell you off. And I was thinking about how like, that is the opposite of what God calls us to. In fact, we'll see today in looking at the prophet Jeremiah, that is not at all how even the, the best prophets did it. But what we find is when we approach someone with kind of almost sadness and humility and graciousness and say almost the exact same thing, the implication and the impact are radically different. And you'll notice as we look at really the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament, what we see in them is, is when they would often speak a truth that Israel didn't want to hear, they go, la, 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 I don't hear you, you're wrong. And today we'll kind of see that's really the story of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is this fascinating character in the Old Testament. Um, Jeremiah is one of the most prolific writers of scripture. Uh, if you didn't know this, he and his, his kind of apprentice Baruch. And so he, Jeremiah wrote all these things. He wrote Jeremiah, I mean, shocking that he would write the book that has his name, I know. He wrote First and Second Kings. He wrote Lamentations. I mean, he wrote a lot. And, um, you know, maybe you've heard the phrase, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. So here's another cool, like, side note. Um, you know, you've heard the band Three Dog Night. Maybe you've heard the song that's also called Joy to the World, not called Jeremiah was a bullfrog. And that opening line was, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. And they're like, yeah, that's not very good. So they changed it to Jeremiah was a bullfrog. We remember it now, right? It has nothing to do with the sermon, just an interesting side note. So um, just mention Jeremiah. That's why I'm telling you. But I think of how we got to this place of understanding Jeremiah, this weeping prophet. I mean, read what he wrote, Jeremiah. Not all that exciting book, by the way. Lamentations to lament. It's kind of sad, right? So Lamentations, Jeremiah did not write great things. Read First and Second Kings. They're actually kind of depressing. 
It's like, oh, God does this great thing among his people, and then this king follows all the other idols. Oh, sweet. But how did we get to the place of Jeremiah? And Jeremiah wrote at a unique time. He wrote before and during the Babylonian exile. So how did we get there, right? So we began this series this summer talking really about, in Genesis 12, we had this call of Abram. This call that Abram, you will be blessed so that you can be a blessing to the world. And this was to be the call of God's unique people, to be a blessing to the world. Um, it didn't take very long into the story. We go Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we have this son Joseph, and the brothers sell him off into slavery. And Joseph becomes like this number two man in Egypt behind Pharaoh, and the Israelites stay in Egypt longer than they should have because it was easy. And then it wasn't so easy because Pharaoh didn't know Joseph anymore, and they're enslaved. And this kind of scene takes place with Moses, and they're, they're, they're released from captivity. They have been exiles in Egypt, but Moses, through the work of God, leads them to freedom. And then we see this kind of thematic thing happen throughout the entire Old Testament, and really we could talk about today as well. God leads them out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to get the Egypt out of them. Their hearts have been kind of shaped by a unique thing. They've been shaped by empire, by the way Egypt did stuff. And then we see, like, you know, if you go read Deuteronomy 17, you see this, this whole list of things that the king of Israel is not supposed to do. Don't do all these things. And part of it is to, to look like Egypt. Don't have slaves. Don't go back and get chariots and horses from Egypt. Don't store up weapons like Egypt. Don't be like Egypt. Egypt represents all the empires of the world. So what do the kings do? Well, Saul's the first king. We literally talked about last week how he looked like a king, like it literally says that he was the best-looking guy in Israel. Dude looked good and was tall, so he was king. Wasn't very good king, then David's king. And David honestly wasn't actually a great king. He was one of the best of these three kings between Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon becomes king. And then if you go read 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11, it's like a checklist, that Deuteronomy 17 stuff. It's like Solomon goes, ooh, I think I can do all these. Don't let your heart be led astray. thousand women, no problem. Um, don't, don't store up chariots and horses. From Egypt, I'll do the same thing. I'll go get all those. Don't have a bunch of gold. It says he has tons of gold, right? He's considered, I think, like the third richest person in human history is what they've kind of guessed at this point. Um, So like this crazy story, Solomon does all the wrong things. Nations torn apart. For all his wisdom, it's no good. We have this split, Israel in the north and the capital of Samaria and Judah in the south with the capital of Jerusalem. They wanted a king, they got a king. It didn't work. Then the story continues, right? Um, so in 722 BC, Assyria took over Israel in the north. And the Israelites were in exile. And then in 587 BC, Babylon took over Jerusalem and all Judah. And so the people of God were exiled. And this is a unique thing for us. To be in exile means to live in a place that is not your home and not by your choice. What does that mean for us? How do we wrestle with what's an exile? What does it mean for us to be in exile? Are we in exile? What does that even mean? And so I was trying to think about why at some level we should probably embrace the idea of living in exile. But it's a weird thing to say. You're saying we should embrace the idea of living in a place that's not our home? Yes. Absolutely. 100%. But I don't like that. I don't care. No, um... I don't care, actually, but I I think it's a good picture for us as Christians. It's when we find that we are resident aliens in the world in which we live because God has not yet redeemed all that is broken in the world. And until that day comes, this is not our home. 
But what does Jeremiah's ministry have to say for us in that? How do we embrace that? How do we understand that? Because Israel and Judah, the people of God, were disoriented. Have you ever been disoriented? Like you feel like the world just doesn't make sense anymore. Like everything's kind of confusing. It's been twisted around. And so I was thinking about my grandmother um, with disoriented. I mean, she's 98 years old. Um, and she is getting a little bit forgetful at times. That's part of what happens when you're 98. But I was thinking about all the things in her life that have to be disorienting. Now, at one level, my grandma's awesome, by the way. She, still, she uses a smartphone, and she can send emails. There aren't a lot of 98-year-olds sending emails and using smartphones, so it's pretty cool. She just got a new stove a couple weeks ago because hers was not working. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a pretty cool thing. Um, and so I was thinking also, though, about how much she has seen in her life, though, that is disorienting. I mean, she was a switchboard operator when my grandfather was in World War II. Um, she has battled cancer three different times. She has moved from picking cotton in Tennessee as a young child, where, like, you walked everywhere, to now there's cars and she's flown. I mean, just the things she has seen in her life are impressive. Technology alone has been radically changed. I mean, all this stuff has changed. And I was thinking about how disorienting life can be in that. And I was thinking, what has been some of those disorienting things for me? And, and one of the things that I think is kind of funny for me, um, we moved here, we moved from Illinois in the Chicagoland area, and... You know, everyone thinks of Chicago and area like just really tall buildings, which is true in Chicago, but only in Chicago. No, not even the suburbs is that true. And so I was thinking about how when we lived there, you could see for miles everywhere. I would drive and I could see like five to seven miles ahead. I could say, oh, that, that like corn silo over there that I see, the grain silo, I know that's such and such a place. I know I'm four minutes from there or whatever. I just knew where I was going because I could literally see it. When we moved here, there are trees everywhere. And you can't see more than a couple hundred yards. And so I would use my GPS because I'd be like, I have no idea where I am. It really was disorienting to me because everything was in a grid in Illinois. It's not all grid because there's lots of water here. I mean, like, it was easy to navigate. You know, if you didn't know where you were, like, the numbers were literally like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. Just follow the road. Eventually, you get back where you want to go. That's not how it works here. Now, I'm pretty good now. I've kind of figured out which way is north, south, east, and west where I live. I can know most of the roads. I don't need my GPS just to drive to Walmart, right? I'm pretty good. But it really was disorienting when you first moved here. Because I had function being able to see where I was going to all of a sudden having to trust a little voice telling me, no, 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 recalculating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You should have told me to start, turn sooner, right? But, but it was disorienting. And so life sometimes is like, a, like that. For us, it is disorienting. And Jeremiah is talking to a people who are disoriented, trying to say, here, let me give you a, a better way to navigate life. Let me point you in a better direction. You may not like the direction, but let me point you to a better direction, the direction God is calling you to live and so I was thinking, what does it mean to speak prophetically? We often think about this idea that, that to be a prophet means to tell the future. And, and sometimes there's a little bit of that in prof speaking prophetically. But most of the time, most often, to speak prophetically is less future-telling and more truth-telling. 
That's really important as we understand scripture, as we, as we think about prophetic text. It's more about truth-telling than future-telling. And that really becomes important for us. And I feel like um, Jeremiah, when he went to the people of God, he didn't say, I have good news and I have bad news. He basically said, hey, everybody, I've got bad news for you. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't want your news. Who's got better news? I don't want to listen to your news because it's not good. Who's got the better news? And so we have this unique scene that plays out in Jeremiah chapters 26 to 28. We're actually going to be in 29 in just a couple minutes. But, but this unique scene happens. And so Jeremiah says to the people, he puts on a yoke like an oxen yoke. I don't know if you've ever seen those, like big wooden thing. It's heavy. And he puts it on his shoulders and he said, here's how this is going to work. You're going to serve Babylon. You are in exile. And it's going to be a while. It's not going to be quick. And so learn to live as an exile in Babylon, a place that is not your home. And you can imagine that people did not want to hear this message. They wanted to hear something radically different. Hey, God's going to kick out the Babylonians, and we're going to have our own country, and we're going to be great again, and all these things they wanted to hear. But that's not what God did. In fact, it wasn't even the message God had for them. And we'll get to the message in just a couple minutes. But, but then there was another guy who said he was a prophet, a guy named Hananiah. And Hananiah didn't like Jeremiah's message either, but he knew the people didn't like it either. So Hananiah went to Jeremiah, he ripped the yoke off his shoulders, and he broke it. He said, I tell you what, everybody, here's how this is really going to work. Two years, that's it. Two years and we're out of here. We're back to Jerusalem, back to our lives, life will be good. Jeremiah is wrong, he is not the prophet of God, I am. Well, it's not what happened. In fact, Tana and I died. Something about when you're false prophetically, it's not really a great thing. And so I was trying to think, what are the things for us that we think about false, false prophets in our day, right? I, I think we sometimes have bad understanding of this, but I'm going to share what I think is a helpful understanding of this. Uh, many of you have heard people try to tell you, hey, the world's going to end on such and such a date. Have you ever heard that? Probably you have. Lots of people who say they're pro- speaking biblical Prophecy will give you that list. Um, Let me tell you what that tells you about them. They're wrong. They're not a prophet. There's guys like Harold Camping who said it like six or seven times. I mean, John Hagee does this all the time now. There are other people who tell you, this is what's going to happen. See, here's all the stuff in the Bible. It lines right up. And let me tell you what I can say with certainty. Yes, we are closer to Jesus returning today than we have ever been before. And we'll be closer tomorrow as well. Unless you think Jesus himself was wrong when he said, no one knows the hour except the Father. Now, if Jesus was wrong, okay, well, then we've got other issues, right? <laughs> Maybe what we recognize in those people when they begin to tell you this is when it's going to happen and it doesn't, that's called being a false prophet. It's not speaking prophetically. It's telling people what they want to hear. And why do people want to hear that? Well, one, we, we bind to conspiracy stuff a lot because we like to know something that no one else knows. I want to know what no one else knows. I want to be on the in. The other part of that is um, it feels hope, hopeful to us if we're like the Israels in exile. We're like, well, good. They're going to get what's coming to them when God comes back and we're going to be saved. And those people are, huh. Remember back to earlier, when we speak truth to someone, it should be with gentleness and humility and kindness. The, the truth is for us, if we think Christ is going to return tomorrow, we should probably be kind of sad at one level. 
if it's true that not every, unless you just say, Lord, Lord, like, you're not in, do we want people to follow Jesus? Shouldn't that mess us up? Shouldn't we be so sad that people we know and love have not decided to give their life to following him who loves them? That should make us sad, not excited at one level. I mean, at one level, we should be like, hey, Jesus, can you wait? I can't wait for you to come. I really can't wait for you to redeem all that's broken, but will you please wait because I want more people to know you. That seems to be more truth-telling. It may mean that life is tougher in some moments, but isn't that our greater hope? And not only because we know what we want everyone to know, it's what literally John writes, for God so loved the whole world that not anyone would perish. And so, um, back to Jeremiah. He writes these words in Jeremiah 29, and I think they're for us helpful. And so here's what the text says. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. I'm going to pause for just a second. Did you catch that? Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. This is exactly what Hannah and I did. In other words, the people wanted to hear it so badly, they didn't care what God really had to say. They just liked this news. Anyway, back to the text. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back to the place for which I carried you into exile. So what's he say? Not overthrow the government. Not go to war. Not I'm going to raise up a new king for you. He says like the part that's sometimes hard to hear. Hey, here's what I want you guys to do. Plant food. Get married. Have kids. But when you stay here, yeah, it's going to be a long time. Build a life. 
Work for the prosperity of the place that you call home, where you live. Work for the good of it, because then you prosper if it's good too. But, but you want us to do this? Uh-huh. You don't want us to be a new people in our own land, our own place, our own thing? No, I don't. Huh. Are you sure? Pretty sure. All right, I like Hananiah better. Can we go back to Hananiah's words instead of Jeremiah's? He's, he fits more with what I'm hoping happens. I mean, if people would have read this and been like, say what? I want to go back the other way. I want the other thing. And this is hard for us because we don't embrace the idea of living in exile. We want to have control of the place that we call home. But that's not what God does here. In fact, um, I love this quote from Walter Brueggemann. He says it this way. Um, Exile is the way to new life in new land. It's kind of important, right? One can scarcely imagine a more radical, less likely understanding of history. In covenantal categories, embrace of curse is the root to blessing. Did you catch that line? Embrace of curse is the root to blessing. In New Testament categories, embrace of death is the way to life. Jeremiah announces the central scandal of the Bible. That radical loss and discontinuity do happen and are the source of real newness. So he holds what surely must have been a minority view. That the exiles are the real heirs. And conversely, those who cling to the land are the ultimate exiles. There's one primary story throughout the scriptures, and this is the primary story. God calls his people to be his image bearers in the world, to reflect his divine image in the world in which they live. The problem is, the other part of the same story, that there's always an empire who tries to shape them in an image contrary to God. So what do we do with this? All right, so yesterday, I um, went to buy a graduation card, and, uh, you know, they have, like, the sections of graduation cards, like this, you know, like the boy, girl, then they have the religious section. And I always grab them because I'm always like, hmm, there's, like, a 50-50 chance I'm not going to like the theology. Okay, it's, like, 80-20, I'm not going to, almost every time. I want to know who writes these cards because I want to talk to them. So the first card I pick up says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It quotes this passage from Jeremiah 29. I put that card right back in the slot. I'm not buying that card. Did you read this text? Here's what this text says. To a whole nation, you is not you like just me. It's you all, all of you. For I know the plans I have for you as a whole people of God who are in exile. By the way, that is not good news for graduation. And, and you go, well, it's for me. Then after 70 years, so hey, 18-year-old, when you're 88, God's got plans for you. Again, bad theology, bad understanding of scripture. Sorry if you have it on your card, your life verse. Sorry for messing you up today. But what we find in this text is instead something radically different. I'll be with you in this place that feels unsettled. When you're disoriented, I'm near. Because I do know the plans I have for you as a people of God. Plans that you would prosper in the place that you live, even in exile. That you would multiply, that you would learn to be more faithful. I have plans for you 
that you will be a witness, that you will be a blessing to the world in which you have never been before. And there's some debate a little bit about when they went in, when this 70 year starts or counts or whatever, but what we can say is this they eventually were freed from Babylon, and it was roughly 70 years. But Jeremiah's message is disorienting. It's not the good news you hoped to hear. It's the bad news that you thought is bad news. But sometimes, what if the bad news is actually the good news? What if reframing our understanding of the world, what if it brings this new idea that God wants to do a new thing? And so here's where I think that's helpful. Um, God works in the way he desires, not in the way you and I desire. I wish God worked how I wanted him to work, I think the world would be better. My life would be better for sure. You guys would all be better. It would be great, right? Except that's not how God works. God works out his purposes in the world in a unique way. Through people who are flawed. He works out his purposes through, like, you and I called to be faithful in this relationship to God. That we're to be people who are a blessing to others. But here's the thing about God. He doesn't force us to do anything. And so if we're not forced to do anything, what happens sometimes? We screw it up. Go read the Old Testament. That's why we're doing this this summer. Notice how often like, they kind of get it right, and you're like, hey, maybe they figured it out, and they screw it all up again. The disciples do the same thing in the New Testament. We find again and again, is apart from God, we can do nothing. But on our own, we keep screwing it up. No matter how good we think we are, how good we try to be, on our own, we kind of mess that up. Now, we have value. We matter. We're important to God. But without us relying on him, we end up in the same place again and again. We end up being enslaved to something and not freed from something. And then Jeremiah writes these words in chapter 31. And these for us, if you'll notice, if you go read through the New Testament, you'd find these, this passage quoted all throughout. And here's what, not the whole thing, but just lines here and there. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, exile, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Exile seems disorienting and horrific. But sometimes when we're disoriented, we can possibly see a new way of something coming about. And Jesus comes. And he fulfills these words where it says, there's been a covenant I made with you, this covenant with Abraham, this covenant with Moses, right? I'm going to be this new people, and there'll be a blessing to the world. And then we see Jesus come, and he fulfills this old covenant. That's why our Bibles, by the way, are Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Testament, New Covenant. That's why there's two, because the one is fulfilled in Jesus. And then God gives a new covenant through Jesus, who says this, I will redeem and I will restore, because my God, my Father, so loves the world and I'm not going to do it through the nation of Israel. I'm going to do it through a people. Again, God keeps choosing people, but this time I choose the church. And how is it going to be written on our hearts? It's what the Holy Spirit does. It will be on their minds and in their hearts and their mouths. It will be because they're the very 
presence of Christ, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, will be the very spirit that transcends upon us in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in what we do and say. And so we can look back and go, huh, not only did Jesus fulfill the old covenant, but he expanded it. To your life and to mine. And to all of human history. And this last line, I think, is good news for us today in the middle of disorientation and exile. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, the good news for us is no matter if we feel disoriented, far from God, heartbroken, or even good, There's this invitation to have a life radically transformed by the goodness and the grace of God. Even Jeremiah, when he talked about truth-telling in his day, it foreshadowed what may come in the future. And it's the question, how do we live with people if this is not our home? How then are we called to live? And I was thinking about this last night as I I ran into someone. We went to a wedding reception. We were kind of walking around outside, and at at the... I got stopped in a store. Long story. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but, but in the conversation... They were trying to wrestle through some things and, and, and um, kind of push in some areas where I'm like, I'm not sure Christ calls us to live that way. But anyway, um, I, I said, well, well, here's the thing. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we've tried to navigate lots of things in the last year and a half, and we've tried to navigate lots of things in our lives. And so, so here's where I've, I've found is a safe place for me to live. I'm not saying I get this right every time, but, but I think it's a safe place to live. If when I read the Gospels and I see the words and the life and the activity of Jesus— If I can say with certainty he wouldn't do it, I definitely shouldn't. And if I go, well, I don't know, it seems like he probably wouldn't, then I better really pause. I go, huh, I probably shouldn't do that either. And I'll tell you this, more often than not, when that becomes the litmus test for my life and the filter I look at, there are certain behaviors and activities I don't engage in because I don't think Jesus would. I don't think he did. And I think I'm called to be a follower of Jesus. And so I can proof text all kinds of scripture and pull stuff out and say, well, it says here, I don't care. But at the end of the day, I want to follow him. And so when he says, well, here's what it looks like to be my disciple. Love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so if what I'm doing or wanting to say isn't going to do that at the end of the day, it probably isn't from God. It's probably not a true teaching. It's probably like Hannah and I. It's something I wish I could hear, but isn't true. And so the challenge for you and I is, will we be people who commit to following Jesus? Will we buy into this idea that he has a new covenant for us, a new way of life, a new hope, goodness that is for us, that he does have plans to prosper his people, to give us a hope and a future, that we would find life here and now and in the life to come? What if that is ultimately how Jesus works? And so the question you and I have to answer is this. Are we willing, are we willing to choose to hear his truth for us? Are we willing to hear like the Jeremiah's? Or do we just want to listen to the Hananiah's? We say, well, I know what you really want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. Because who doesn't like to hear what they already think they believe? But what if, what if the challenge is this? And what we find, I'm teaching at Bible study this week. And and by the way, you're going to get to hear it again. It's what, next week I'll be in here eight years, and so I preached this series when I first got here. You're going to hear it again, because I, I just spent like 20 hours working on the series, um, or maybe longer than this Bible study, like about 10 hours a week for the past several weeks. But anyway, so you're going to get us to hear it again from the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. 
And, and what I came to again and again is almost all of those end with this singular line, have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What are we actually hearing? Are we listening to the voice of Jeremiah or the voice of Hananiah? And the way we filter and know the difference is what might Jesus say into this? Who is Jesus in his character and nature? And if what we're hearing doesn't line up with him, it's probably not true. And it's probably not good. We probably should embrace it. And even if it's disorienting and messes us up at some level, it may very much be what God wants to do in us to do something new, to radically change our hearts so that we can remember that just like the words of Jeremiah, I will remember their wickedness and their sins no more because I will forgive them and redeem them, and that as a unique people, they will have a hope and a future. That is what Jeremiah 29 is all about. We pray with me this morning as the praise team comes to lead us in a song. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. For the way you love us, for the way you embrace us, for the way you call us to hear that sometimes we just go, oh, is that really what we have to listen to? Is that really the way you want to speak into our hearts and our minds and our lives? But if it is, if it is, will you open our eyes and our ears? We desperately want to be the unique people of God, so radically defined by your hope and your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to hear your voice, that your spirit would convict our hearts when we're going in ways that are about what we want to hear, not what you have for us. And may we be careful that the spirit's voice doesn't just sound a lot like our own voice. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to be this, this kind of unique people so radically defined by hope and grace and mercy and your truth. And Father, we don't want to be like the Israelites who kept clinging to something that we were supposed to let go of and find new life through you, that, that sometimes we embrace the wrong thing. Help us to let go of what we need to let go of, even if we're disoriented, even if it feels reckless. But may we cling to this New Testament idea that we find in Jesus, that to find our truest life, we have to lose it. We lose our life, we find it. And so Father, we want to be the unique people of God, so radically defined by your love and your grace and your mercy. May our hearts break for what breaks your heart. And so we do pray this day that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name.